If you, again, if you are, have a Bible with you or an iPad or iPhone or whatever device you're going to use, um, go ahead and access Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at the first four verses today. If you were here last week and kind of give you some context, we finished a little mini-series called Understanding the Kingdom or Embracing the Kingdom of God. And we went through Matthew 13 and understood the stories and parables that Jesus told us about this big thing called the kingdom of God. And we've been a part of this longer series, which right now we're at a year mark, which is a pretty substantial amount of time, going through the main teachings in Matthew to learn what it means to be a disciple, to learn what it means to follow Jesus, the whole reason that why we exist as a church and why we are here. And so we've been going through these key passages. And so now we get to Matthew 18, which brings in a whole nether kind of context for what Jesus wants us to understand. It's this thing called community. And, and what Jesus wants you and I to understand about that is that this big picture of if you've made a commitment to follow Jesus, you've given your life to him, now we understand the bigger picture of the kingdom of God. He's working in you. He's working through you. And now, because of that, you get thrown into this thing called the church, which is the people of God. And this place and this, this, these people called the church are broken and backwards and, and sinners just like you are. And so now we get thrown into this thing called the church. And now God wants us to learn, to how, learn how to work together and get along for his purpose in our lives and for his purpose through us. That's pretty difficult, isn't it? Now, for most of you, you all get along with everybody perfectly, right? None of us do. And that's why in this chapter, Jesus is addressing his disciples and he's saying, listen, these are some really important things because what you're about to enter into, Jesus knows what's going to happen, where they're headed, what they're going to have to walk through. He knows that the pressure is going to be applied. He's talking to his 12 disciples and telling them, listen, you need to learn this concept of community and, and being in relationship with each other because it's going to be tested. Because you're going to have rubs with each other. You're going to have frustrations. You're going to have issues. Especially when you're trying to serve my purpose and my mission in the world. And all the other outside forces are pressing down on you. It's going to be really easy for you to turn on each other. And not even let the enemy from the outside destroy you. But let the enemy from the inside destroy you. And so he talks about this thing called community. What is community? When we hear the the term we think, okay, we live in a community. A community is a group of people. But it's a group of people that has a a special connection because of the purpose that they fulfill or the common things that they have with each other, that they move together in, in unison for a greater purpose. They have those commonalities. The opposite of community is disunity. It's working against each other. It's working separate from each other. And it's something that leads to the destruction of God's purpose and mission in our lives all the time. And that's why it's so important for you and I to understand this because... Every single one of us deals with the issues Jesus is going to talk about. There is not one of us in this room, and if it's true, if you would raise your hand to this, then I'm going to have to say, you're probably lying, that would say in your life, I've never been offended, I've never offended anyone, I've never asked for forgiveness, and no one's ever extended me forgiveness because I'm perfect. I don't think that's any of us. All of us could probably willingly admit, I have offended somebody, I have been offended by somebody, I have needed forgiveness, and I have extended forgiveness in my life. That's a part of being human. That's a part of the church. And that's what Jesus talks about. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to walk through this passage and look at this thing called community, because this morning, what we're going to do is Jesus is laying the foundation of what it means to live in true, healthy community with other people who are following him. 
So starting in verse 1 of Matthew 18, let me read through, through verse 4, and then we'll kind of walk through it together. So it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child and humbles themselves is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So before we get into this, just I want you to understand that there's, there's some stuff going on behind the scenes here. So it says in this passage, is that disciples ask the question, who is the greatest? But what some of the other gospels include is the, the kind of the even more background of what's really going on. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 and 34, before they ever get to this scenario where they're asking Jesus the question, where he's going to answer who is the greatest, because that's what they're asking, there's a whole nother dialogue that went on that made them begin to wonder about this question. It says in, Ma- in Mark 9, 33 and 34, it says they came to Capernaum, and it says when, when he was in the house, talking about Jesus, he asked them, what were you, go- were you arguing about on the road? Then verse 34, it says, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. So understand what's going on here. Jesus knew what they were talking about. And even when they asked the question, it's almost they're trying to present it like, we really were very interested to know who would be the greatest. Jesus knew the background story, which was they had just had an argument. These are the 12 people that are supposed to go change the world. And they're walking on the road, arguing with each other. When Jesus comes into the kingdom, who gets to sit at the right hand? Who gets to be the one that has the most credentials and the most authority and the most power? Who's going to be the one that's going to be in control? Who's going to be the greatest? So when Jesus says to them, this is so great. He says, so what were you arguing about? And what does it say? They were silent. Can you imagine how awkward that was? How does he know what we're talking about? We're having a private conversation apart from Jesus, and somehow he knows what's going on. And I think it's interesting because whether you and I ever have those conversations with people, we have those internal conversations all the time. We have the conversation about who is the greatest, and in our minds, our life is about making us the greatest. Not necessarily in terms of fame or acclaim, but in terms of making us the priority in our own lives over and above other people. And that's what Jesus is going to address here. That can't work in this thing called community. And it can never be a part of what God is doing in his body, in the church. Because it's, it's counterproductive to what he's trying to accomplish in our lives and what he's wanting to do through us. Our relationship with each other is key to our relationship with God. They cannot be separated. You cannot be good with God and not good with people. And vice versa. You have to be at a place where ultimately your relationships are healthy in this thing called community. So let me start with really addressing the question that the disciples were asking, because it's the question that all of us us ask. And when you go a little deeper, you realize there's some motivations inside of us that cause us to ask those kind of questions. So three things that I want to highlight that really have to do with the opposite of community being disunity and what what is the result of. So the first thing is this. Disunity, when we work against each other, is the result of competition. When the disciples were asking the question, who is the greatest, there was this side to them that was a bit competitive. They wanted to be the best. They wanted to be somebody above somebody else. And so there's this sense of competition, trying to beat out other people. Now, understand, competition in and of itself is not a bad thing. 
But when competition becomes about how you and I step on or step over somebody else to get to the place that we want to get to, then competition becomes something that poisons us and harms other people. And that's what is at the root of this, that, that the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest in this kind of competitive thing. And what competition does is it always loses sight of everybody else around it, itself except itself. Competition is focused on itself, where when you read through the scriptures, there's so much of, of, of the opposite of what it is to be someone who follows Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, which is what we're talking about today, embracing this thing called humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. When I read those verses, I see nothing about competition. I see everything about humility towards each other, embracing each other, not trying to step over somebody to get to a certain level. Now, that's important because if we're honest, again, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but we have those people in our life, maybe they're co-workers, maybe they're friends, maybe they're, friends, maybe they're even your spouse. That, that there's something that you know is not right in your relationship. And when something negative happens to that person, if you're honest, there's just a little bit of joy that happens inside of you. Because there's something that's happened to them that's going to allow you to have an advantage that you didn't have before. So there's a little bit of happiness, a little bit of joy, a little bit of satisfaction. Why? Because now you've got the upper hand or now you're a little bit above them because you have this advantage. And we do that. We, we, we live that way so many times. If we were really honest with ourselves inside, that, that sometimes that brings us joy when people that we perceive to be an enemy or someone that maybe we're not getting along with, something bad happens to them. And we take advantage of that situation. That's that competitiveness to get above somebody or get an advantage. It's like The Amazing Race, which is, I've told you, it's like one of my favorite reality shows on TV because it's such a, a cultural and global show because they're the contestants are literally racing around the world and they're going through different countries and they're experiencing different culture. They have to do different tasks that a lot of times have to do with the culture that they're in. And, and, it's, and then you always have the dynamic of personalities and people trying to work together and work against each other. And one of the things that's interesting in that is that a couple of years ago, they introduced in one of the seasons this thing called a U-turn. So as they come into a country, they, they come and they get a clue and they figure out what they're supposed to do and they'll have these different challenges and, and there's a roadblock that they'll, they'll come to and the roadblock is a task they have to perform and sometimes there's two tasks. They can choose from one or the other of which they want to complete and then they move on to the next step. Well, when they introduced the U-turn, what that did is they would come to this kind of this post and it says U-turn on it and, and they could choose any team that was behind them they could choose to U-turn, and what a U-turn would do would force that team to not choose one of either task. They would have to complete both tasks, or they'd have to wait for a certain period of time or whatever. It would basically, what they were trying to get the contestants to do was to take advantage of another team, was to get a better position by causing somebody else to have to do more work or have to wait out, you know, wait out like a timeout kind of a thing. And so it was interesting to watch the dynamic of people. Because I remember as you're watching this, you're like, ah, people won't really do that. And the first episode right away, people didn't even hesitate. 
because there would be one team that everybody hated, and so they felt justified. Like, okay, we want to U-turn that team so they get further behind anybody else. And I remember we watch it as a family, and, and there, even in us, there's that tension. You know, for me, I'm like, oh, we don't, let's, let's make it fair and square. Let's make it you know, an even playing field. Everybody competes together. Nobody, nobody you know, takes the advantage. But then I know that in your own flesh, there are some people that you just don't like, and you really want to see them U-turned. Anybody watch the show? And when they get U-turned, you're like, yeah. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Kim's that way, but maybe I'm not that way, right? But, but really, that, what is that? What is that inside of us? It's that competitiveness that takes joy at the failure of other people because somehow we're just a little bit better than they are. We have an advantage over them. The disciples were trying to figure out this pecking order and who was really going to be the greatest. And because of that, they're in competition, which means when you're in competition, you're not working with, you're working against. Which leads to the second thing that's true about this question, who the greatest is. What's embedded in that and brings disunity is this thing called comparison. Not only are we in competition, but we like to compare. So just again, we don't have any insight to the details of what was happening on that journey on the road when they're having this discussion. But can you just imagine what it would have been like to be walking with those 12? And they're, they're talking about who's going to be the greatest. I can guarantee you part of the conversation was... Let me pull out my spiritual resume. Let me show you what I've done. I've known Jesus as long as you guys have, but look at my, look at my pedigree. Look at where I've come from. Look at what I've done. Hey, I prayed for that person. They got healed. And all these different things. It's like, let me show you my resume. Let me compare myself to you, and let's see who comes out on top. See, the disciples did it 2,000 years ago. We do it today. We compare ourselves. We either think that we're better or we think that we're inferior to other people. We, we compare ourselves all the time. We do it in our workplace. We do it in the church. We do it in relationships. We have this comparison that we put against somebody else to see how we rate. And normally we try to find a way to be just a little bit better. Jesus talked about this kind of scenario when he shared a parable in Luke chapter 18. Let me read verse 10 through 12. It says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, which means I'm up here, and he lists, it, he lists the, the bad tra- attributes of others, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. What was he doing? He's pulling out the spiritual resume and he's saying, I am better compared to him. How many times do we do that? We, we compare ourselves to other people. There's a problem when we do that because all of us have a flaw in our spiritual resume. Paul talks about the flaw in Romans chapter 3. Let me verse, read verse 10 through 12 there, where Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isn't that the most uplifting passage of Scripture ever? Nobody's life verse comes out of Romans 3, 10 through 12. What is Paul saying? No matter how good you think your resume is, it's still flawed. Because ultimately, nobody's good by nature. Nobody does what's right. Nobody's righteous. That's why we need Jesus. But we still try to come up with that. We still just play this comparison game, and it always is destructive in our lives because it either elevates us beyond who we are or it degrades us below who God's created us to be. I think I've shared this before, but but just to be honest with you, pastors are the worst at this. Talk about ego getting in the way of what God wants to do. Pastors, I know I'm one of them. We, we, We have issues with insecurity and ego and pride. 
And if and I, I it took me a while, but a number of years ago, God really opened my eyes to how huge an issue this was in my life. Because every pastor's conference I ever went to was this awkward feeling when you walk into the room, everybody's sizing everybody else up. That's what would happen. Everybody walks in and, and you're 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 kind of doing the kind of the friendly meet and greet, but behind the scenes, everybody's really wanting to know the bottom line. And, and the bottom line is this. How big is your church? How big is your budget? Do you have a building program? All this kind of stuff. All the stuff that has nothing to do with what Jesus said, which was make disciples. He didn't say make buildings. He didn't even say grow big numerical churches. He said make disciples. But we get in that way. And so, so it's really awkward because you, you start looking around the room to see who is the most impressive. And it's sad because we're all supposed to be working together, yet we're working in competition with each other. And that's why it's really sometimes it's really sad when there's church transition and people leave one church and go to another. People get excited. Look, the church is growing. No, it's not. <laughs> we're just swapping sheep. It's like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. That's what it is. It's like, wow, our chairs look really good, but the, you know what? The ship's still sinking because we're not gaining any ground because the kingdom of God is not expanding. We're just swapping people. You know where that, that really, my eyes were open to that after going to pastor's conference after pastor's conference and I would think great about myself and then I would go home feeling horrible is that actually I was watching a very spiritual movie called Top Gun. You all know that. I think I should have spoken, but there's a scene where, you know, Maverick and Goose get to the flight school in San Diego and they're in their first briefing and the commanding officer standing there and telling them what they're going to do and, and Maverick, who is, is Tom Cruise, he's paying no attention to his commanding officer. And he's just turning around and he's looking at everybody around them. And finally, Goose leans over to him and he says, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just looking around to see who the best is. That's pastor's conferences. That's exactly what it is. And when I watched that, I thought, that's me. That's me. And God really began to work in me to realize that, that other pastors are not competitors. They're actually partners. We're all on the same team. We're all within the body of Christ. We're all about God's kingdom advancing. We're about God's purpose. And so I began to drop the pride and the ego and the insecurity and realize God is working in us together. It took me a while to figure that out, but all of us have a tendency to do that. Think about it in your own life. When you find yourself in a context, maybe it's work, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's family, where you're finding yourself comparing yourself constantly to other people. And pride over estimates and insecurity underestimates and you are left being miserable jesus says to live in true community to be about what i'm doing in your life and through you you can't allow that to drive you and then there's a third thing that's embedded in that question who is the greatest that really breeds disunity and that's this thing called control so when you ask who is the greatest what does the greatest get to do they get to call the shots they get to be in charge that's why the disciples were asking this. We're like, who's going to have the most influence and authority who can be in charge and in control? Because that's what we want. That's part of the dialogue. And you and I, deep down inside, we want to be in control. Now, some people say, well, I never want to be in control. I don't want to be the person who's leading. I don't want to be the upfront person. No, but we all want to be in control because we want to make ourselves happy. Therefore, we want to control all of the circumstances around us so that we don't feel pain, fear, whatever it is in our life. We run from that. We are control freaks. All of us are. And ultimately, we want to be in control of our own destiny. We want to be our own God. We want to be in control. And so it's embedded in that. But to live in community means I can't be in control all the time. I can't, I can't allow myself to always be the one that's, that's controlling everything. And that's why it's so beautiful that the scriptures call, say, Jesus is the Lord of the church. The pastor's not the Lord of the church. The elders aren't the Lord of the church. 
Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the one that ultimately is in control of all things. But it's a struggle for us because we, we want to be in control. Listen to what Jesus said, very familiar passage, passage in, in Luke 9, verses 23 and 24. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, will, it will be saved or will save it. What is he saying? You can't be in control. You have to die to control. See, and the reason this is so important in the context of community is when you and I vie for control and we demand control, something happens. If you're a person with a very strong personality and you combine that with wanting to be in control, you begin to dominate other people. And you know, one of the ways I see this is very interesting. I see this in marriage a lot. Not my marriage. Other marriages, because Kim and I have a perfect marriage, okay? No, but seriously, sitting down with especially couples who are premarital prenatal counseling, they, they want to go through and prepare for, for marriage, sit down, and not always, but a lot of times, I can pick up within the first 20 minutes who's the dominant person in the relationship. And if the person who's not dominant doesn't speak up, you can see the whole cycle beginning to build. So the dominant person always gets their way. Anybody know anyone like that? If you're sitting next to your spouse and it's them, please don't raise your hand because I don't want to create more problems for you later. But we know those kind of people, right? You've heard of people like that. Yeah, some of you are raising your hands even with your spouses next to you, almost pridefully. I'm just kidding. But it's, it's that feeling that uh, I know that I'm going to get my way, so therefore in this relationship, I'm going to make sure that happens. And I watch this, and that's something that comes out early on in counseling. And I'll tell couples, if you live this way, the one who's non-dominant, who's not in control and is always acquiescing to the one in control will grow resentment and bitterness deep inside of them. If they don't speak up and talk about what's going on, some people I've watched, I've watched it happen over years. They're really patient and they simmer for years. And then suddenly 15, maybe 20 years into marriage, divorce happens and the other party goes, I don't know where this came from. Because they finally burned through that simmer and exploded because they got so tired of the other one being in control. And that's the beauty of marriage. Marriage is never 50-50. Marriage is 100-100. If both of you aren't all in, it will never work. Not all in for yourself, but all in for the other party. And when you and I think about who is the greatest, what we're really asking is, I want to be in control. I want to get my way all the time. I want to make myself happy. And that may mean that it comes at the expense of people who are closest to me. In marriage, in the church, we try to grasp for control. So Jesus says these are the things that are embedded underneath the surface in all of us, the things that you and I have to come to grips with, the things that cause disunity, that cause fractures in our relationship, that eventually lead to fractures in the church, and then eventually lead to us not fulfilling God's purpose. The majority of what happens in terms of division in the body of Christ is not theological. It's relational. So we started because we had this belief. That happens sometimes. But usually that belief was layered on top of the fact that somebody could not reconcile a broken relationship. So they went and they said, I'm going to do it better. That's how it happens. We don't deal with it. We don't talk with each other. So then as we look at the specific verses in 3 and 4 where Jesus addresses the question that they're asking, that we're asking, he describes for you and I the results of what community brings in our life and what it requires of us to do. Look at verse 3. The first thing that's true about community and the result of it is that it requires a change in course. 
Let me explain what I mean. Because Jesus says, I tell you, truly I tell you, unless you change. We'll stop right there because the word change Jesus uses is very important. It literally means to convert or to turn or to turn around. And what he's saying is if you want to embrace humility, you want to reject pride, you want to embrace community, you want to reject disunity, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to change the direction in the course of your life. The concept's called repentance, and we all hear it, and it's usually a negative term. But what Jesus is saying is there has to be a change in your life so that you're no longer going the same direction that you've always gone. Because the same direction that you've always gone leads to disunity and brokenness and offense and fractured relationships. But if you're going to live in true community, you have to change the way that you live your life. This is not just true of relationship. This is true of following Jesus. If our lives don't change direction, then we have to take a step back and say, do I really know who Jesus is? Have I really encountered Jesus? But he's saying in terms of understanding humility and living in community, you and I have to change. We cannot go on living the same way that we've always lived. There has to be a change. And that change has to come because you and I live in a culture that refuses to change and continues to do the same thing over and over and over and over again and lives in constant state of fractured relationships all the time. I mean, we, we just find a way to cope with living at odds with people, with fractures in families, with people in the church that we don't like. We find a way to cope, but we never, ever deal with it. And what happens is the very thing that's supposed to bring wholeness and fulfillment to us in our relationships is the very thing that distracts us from what God is trying to do through us. We can never move forward if we can't come together. We can't work together. And if you and I will change the way Jesus is asking us to change, it will come as a counter to our culture. Because the majority of people in the church and the majority of people in our culture assume that we will be competitive, we will compare, and we'll be controlling. That is the default for humanity. And if you and I in the church choose to live our lives differently, it will catch people off guard. It will be costly to us, but it will change the way that we're able to relate to each other. Let me, let me illustrate this. Talk about laying down competition and comparison and control. I'm going to play a short video clip. You've probably either heard of this or seen this. It's an amazing story about two softball teams on a field, a girl hitting a home, only home run of her entire career and an extremely humble and generous outpouring by the opposing team in helping her to get around the bases. Let's watch this together. So take that off the softball field and put it into life. Who are people in your life that you know, If going back to that first point of competitiveness, that if something bad were to happen to them, if you're honest, there's something inside of you that feels like either it's justified or you're glad that they would experience that. What if you, describing, living out what Jesus is saying here, you changed your response? And instead of taking joy in their brokenness or their failure, you actually lent them a hand to help them recover from that failure. See, what you don't know in that story is that that decision by those players by Central Washington not only cost them a game, it cost them the conference championship because in losing that game, Western Oregon went on to win the conference. That's a huge price to pay. But that story has been told thousands of times over recent years, and no one could care less if Central Washington won their conference because what stood through that was not a win or a loss. It was a generous, humble act to help somebody who could not help themselves to get around the bases. 
You see, as you and I come together, and, and one of the things we mentioned with community groups, that God has us together in relationships because we're part of the process of discipleship is that we are discipling each other. We are helping each other. We are challenging each other. We're encouraging each other. We're praying for each other. We're pushing each other. We're holding each other accountable. And when we fall and when we fail in life, we're supposed to do counter to what the culture would do, would be say, ah, oh, serves you right. You deserved it. No, we're supposed to reach out and we're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to encourage each other. We're supposed to make sure that we become more like Jesus as we fall forward in the midst of our failure. That means you and I have to change the default, change the course, change the way that, that we process things, which leads to the second thing. Look at going on verse 3. Jesus also says the community is a result of a change in our mindset. So Jesus says, and you need to do this. You need to become like little children. Now, when Jesus said that, this is really important because most likely, from what we can tell in the context, Jesus uses the word children, which can refer to an infant or a toddler. But probably in this context, because Jesus is using an illustration, he's probably referring to a toddler that's probably right there near them. Probably even maybe even come, came over and sat on his lap. So they're all looking at this little toddler, and he says, you need to become like little children. You need to be like this. And what is he saying? He, he's not necessarily saying you need to be childish, but you need to be childlike. And there's, they're, they're very different in, in what Jesus is saying. Is that So think about this. The, the Kind of the concept of a child. A child is innocent. They have a sin nature. We all know that if you have a, you know, a little baby at three in the morning who's screaming, that's a good, healthy sin nature going on there. We all know that, that that's part of being human. But by default, there, there's, this, there's this innocence. There's a, a genuine acceptance of other people. There's a dependence. All those are characteristics that something happens in us over time as we become adults that we begin to lose. The simplicity of looking at life in a very obvious, upfront way, non-complicated way. As we become adults, we complicate things. We become cynical. We become rejecting instead of accepting. All these things enter. And Jesus is saying, no, no, if you're going to live in true community, you have to go back to what it was like to be a child. Innocence and acceptance and dependence and those kinds of things on each other. If you want to see a, a, an illustration of this, now this is going to sound a little creepy, but go to a playground and watch kids. Don't go with some creeper stalker, okay? I don't want people saying, oh, those guys at New Hope, they're really weird. They go stalk kids. And No, go, go to a playground and watch kids play. Now, you're going to have some kids, the younger they are, usually the better it is, but, but, but you're going to have some kids that might not get along. But for the most part... If you stick a group of kids, toddlers or maybe a little bit older, out on like a, like a playground. So there's swings, there's a jungle gym, there's a slide, there's a merry-go-round. For the most part, they have a good time, don't they? And they'll have a good time with all kids around them. They'll find a way, for the most part, to share the merry-go-round, to take turns going down the slide, to take turns on the swing. They usually will have fun together. Because the point of why they're there is fun. Really simple. Now, if you take the same playground and you stick a bunch of adults on it, first of all, you're going to look really ridiculous with a bunch of adults playing on that, but you and I would approach it differently. We would, first of all, wonder who's going to be there. Do I really want to be there? Secondly, who's going to be in charge? Who gets to go first on the slide? And why are all these apparatuses metal? That's outdated. They're really not safe. We should have plastic because that's a little bit better. And we'd have all these reasons of why this simple thing of going and playing together on a playground is complicated and offensive and disjoined. Why? Because we're older 
adults who've been jaded and become cynical because of our own lives. Jesus is saying is if you live that out and you're not like a child, then you can never live in true community with each other because you're not dependent, you're not accepting, there's no innocence to you anymore. That's why he's pointing to the disciples. Hey, you guys just had this discussion about who the greatest is? When was the last time you heard toddlers having a discussion about who the greatest is? They don't have that discussion because they don't care. Because they'd rather just be with kids. They'd rather just have fun. They'd rather just keep it simple. So you and I have to change the course, the direction we're headed. We have to change our mindset if we're going to really embrace this foundation called humility of what it means to live in community. And then the final thing Jesus talks about in verse 4, community is the result of a change in our position. So he says, therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child, he's, again, this illustration, that humbles himself, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Changing our position. What's our default? Me first. I want the best seat. I want the best position. I want to be number one. That is the default of our own sinful nature. That's the way we gravitate. That's the way we drive. That's the way we live life. That's how we choose where we're going to live. That's where we choose where we're going to eat. It's what I want to have, what I want, what brings me happiness. Therefore, I want to take the, the primary position in life. Jesus says if you're going to live in community and you're going to get along and you're going to actually experience humility towards other people, you have to take the lower position and let others take the higher position. That's hard for us. Jesus talked very specifically about this in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. He says this, he says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So there's this banquet unfolding before them. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's counter. It's opposite. Not taking what you think is rightfully yours, but allowing somebody else to have what's better than what you have. Now, I know when you read that, if you're like me, there's that false humility that says, and let me play the game. Let me take second place, so maybe I'll get moved up to first. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Genuinely take the lower position. Take the lower position. And if, if the time comes where you're going to get moved up, at least you're going to move up and you're not going to move down. But view other people that way. There's a, this family that uh, we knew up in Oregon that uh, put some materials together on raising kids. And they had some really good, good things and some good techniques and some understanding about raising kids. And they had six kids. So this was not theory. This was all real stuff. And one of the things that they taught their kids from when they were young is to show honor and to take the lower place for your siblings who were older than you. So they had this rule in their family that when they got into the vehicle to go to wherever, from point A to point B, if both parents were in the car and one was driving, the, the front seat, which by the way, we all know, when, when you're going to a car, uh, what do you call when you want to sit in the front seat and you're not driving? Shotgun, Right? Which is what? I want the best seat even though I'm not driving. I want the front seat. I want the front passenger seat. I don't want the cramped leg room in the back. And I, don't, I want the best seat. That's what shotgun means. And so they weren't allowed to do that. So when they got into the vehicle, whoever was the oldest child in that vehicle always sat 
in the front passenger seat. And they didn't argue about it. In fact, if mom was going to pick up their son who was in elementary school and she picked him up first, he could sit in the front passenger seat. But when she got to the middle school to pick up the daughter who was older than him, guess what happened? He got out of the car and he went and he got in the back seat and then his sister got back in the front as a place of honor to her. Now, if you have kids, all of us know, and I guarantee in that family it had to happen, but any kids of yours or maybe when you were growing up ever argued where they're going to sit in the car? We all have. Any of us ever argued our position in life? All of us have. We have a sense of entitlement. I deserve this. And we can give 10 reasons why we deserve it. Jesus says, no. No, you have to take the lower position. You have to be willing to put somebody else above you. Can you imagine what our lives and our church and community would look like if all of us lived that way? That our default wasn't to take the best position. It was to take the lower position and let somebody else go first. It might freak people out. Can you imagine merging onto the freeway? It might get a little crazy. No, no, you go first. No, you go first. No, you, we might be there all day. I don't know. You're just too nice. Wouldn't that be nice for once? It would change. Let me, let me close with this to get the bigger picture of what's at stake here. So why is Jesus having this conversation? Well, first of all, he's correcting his disciples to let them know, by the way, don't worry about who the greatest is. You guys are missing it. You need to be like a child. You need to, you need to be humble. Why would Jesus have this conversation? Why is it so important? Because I mentioned earlier, he knew where they were going. If you keep reading through the Gospel of Matthew and you get to the end and then you get into the book of Acts, you, you see where they were going, which is they were going to go change the world. They were going to be unified on God's mission to go, to go and, and engage the enemy and allow God's kingdom to be extended through them, which is the most difficult task any human being can take on. Jesus knew that they needed to be together. That's why even in John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying to the Father, he prayed this. He said, let my disciples be one as you and I are one. They need to be unified because what they're going to walk through, there can't be any fracture. And Jesus says the same thing to New Hope today. As we move and become a church that is more mission and kingdom focused, guess what's going to happen? We're going to run into struggles with each other. Because we're human, we're going to offend each other. And we have to find a way to be able to get beyond that and build the foundation of humility, which we'll talk about in the next few weeks. Jesus addressed, how do we deal with offenses? How do we deal with someone who may be living in sin? How do we deal with correcting each other and doing it in a way that's love and and redemptive and it reconciles relationship instead of destroying them? So let me close with this. So many of you might know who Wayne Cordero is. If you don't know, Wayne is a pastor in Hawaii who pastors a church called New Hope. And he had, for years, and continues to do this, has these leadership practices where he'll take a bunch of uh, pastors or church leaders, bring us together for like a week, and you learn from him. You basically follow him and, and shadow him for the whole week. You learn things about ministry and about his personal life. He lives at a pretty high clip, and so you're up early and you're, and you're up late. And, and so part of that is he's trying to help you to understand some really important leadership lessons. And so one of those things is one day, uh, Wayne is an avid canoeer. He goes in outrig- outrigger canoes all the time in Hawaii, and he's done it for years. And so they took, there's about 30 or 40 of us pastors out to the ocean, and we were all going to go canoeing, whether you had gone canoeing or not in your life. And so the point was to teach a group of six individuals or so to get into a canoe and to learn in a short amount of time how to work together to be effective and efficient in getting the canoe forward. That was the whole, you could see the whole lesson trying to be taught. Well, as the teams were kind of getting divided up, I ended up with a bunch of really young, athletic, competitive guys. 
and they were really loud. In fact, they looked at our team, and then they looked at Wayne's team, which were all 50 and older, and they said, we're going to smoke them. And I'm like, guys, they've been doing this for a long time. And they're like, are you kidding me? They're all old guys. There's no way they can keep up with us. I'm like, guys. And so then they started to get vocal. They started calling Wayne out. They're like, hey, Wayne, we're going to beat you guys easily. This isn't even going to be a race. It's going to be over before it starts. I'm like, this is not good. It's not good. So we get in the boat, and we get out there, and we get five minutes to learn how to do this. We get five minutes to organize our team, who's going to call out the strokes, what side of the boat your oar is supposed to be on, all the techniques that you're supposed to learn. So we get five minutes kind of to, to get things together. So as this is going on, each, you know, you're supposed to all kind of race together, but because our, our team was so loud... Wayne said, fine, if you guys want to take us on, it's us too. It's your boat and my boat, let's go. I'm like, uh-oh, now we're in trouble. Now it's not all the other guys, it's just our six against his six. And we get in the boat, and we're thinking, okay, we can do this. And when the gun goes off, I'm not kidding you, it was one of the most embarrassing things of my life. <laughs> because as we started rowing, I got more wet inside the boat than I would have been if I was in the water, because we were flailing we couldn't get a rhythm. Whoever was calling, nobody was hearing. People were arguing. We had our oars on the wrong side of the boat. We're splashing each other, and we're going nowhere fast. Meanwhile, I'm watching Wayne's boat, smooth as silk, cutting through the water. And they finish, and they get their boat over to the side, and they're getting out, and they're standing on the shore, and we're still struggling just to get to the finish line. It was such a, a, a massive defeat. Wayne gets back in his boat and paddles back out and says, Hey, guys, do you need help finding the shore? just to rub it in just a little bit. And as I walked away from that, the the illustration was made by our humiliation of what Wayne was trying to get through to us. You can't work alone and you can't work against each other or you'll go nowhere. We worked against each other based on pride. We, We weren't in sync because our focus wasn't the right place. And we watched a team that probably physically was less than us, but they knew how to work together so they were better than us. Moving forward as a church, God is calling us to align. That's what we, this Align Seminar Tuesday night, by the way, is not so that we can align behind New Hope and we can sing the New Hope fight song. No, it's aligning behind the gospel and letting Jesus drive us forward and working together, being on the same page because what is at stake is so important. It's the world. It's people's eternity. It's Jesus wanting to reconcile people back to God through him using us. That's why we need to be in alignment. That's why we need to work together as God moves us forward. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your inspiration of knowing as you had 12 people gathered there and you were telling them that they needed, these adults needed to be like children, that they needed to be taking the lower position. When you were sharing all that with your disciples, knowing what was ahead of them, you knew you were sharing that with us 2,000 years ago because you know what is ahead of us. Lord, I thank you that you are doing more and more in us and through us in our community and in the world and in, in, in the greater Los Angeles area. But Lord, there's so much more that you want us to be a part of. And for us to get there, Lord, you know you want us to be together. You want us to be together, unified in our marriages, in our friendships, in serving together in our community groups, in the way that we work together as a church family. You want us to be unified. You want us to live in true community. So, Lord, as we walk through this, allow your spirit to sink deep within into our souls. 
these things that we need to learn about humility so that we have the foundation for the community that you want to build in us and among us. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.